Welcome to the Pit Box Podcast. I'm John Satori. Wow, what a race. Many, including myself, were predicting a bit of a ball fest at the ferocious Mugello circuit, but it really served up probably the most memorable race debut for a circuit ever. Three race restarts, a safety car, and, well, we're going to look back at the highlights and talking points. Also, it was Ferrari's 1,000th race. I've got a fan who bleeds Ferrari on the podcast. He's just a diehard fan of the team and the sport. And I said from the start that I wanted to give just ordinary F1 fans a chance to voice their opinions. We're going to start that this week. Also, we'll square up on news that dropped after last week's podcast. Vettel to Racing Point Perez to... Well, we're going to look at that. And Gasly, he went from hero to zero points this week. How's he stacking up against his teammate? And does he deserve another crack at max? All coming up on the Pit Box Podcast. Yeah, well, what a race it was, the 1,000th for Ferrari, and not because, unfortunately, uh, there was any great result for them, Um, although I did love that livery they ran. Why can't they just run that all the time, that deep blood red colour? I thought it was fantastic. Lots of other people thought it was fantastic. Uh, of course, it was the colour that uh, Enzo Ferrari adopted when he first started out. Uh, he you know, left uh, Alfa Romeo and, and started off on his own, um, and it's just a gorgeous colour, that. Anyway... Uh, we'll talk more about that. Um, but what a race. Two red flags, three race starts, uh, safety car restart. It was an incredible race. And as I said earlier, it, it uh, was probably the best ever debut race-wise for a circuit. And of course, uh, that's it. I don't think we'll be going back there again. I mean, it's not to say we couldn't. Of course, we could. If COVID continues next year, I'd say without crowds, that may well be on the calendar. Of course, it was a great thing to see a few thousand people in the stands. Finally, we've been able to actually get people to an F1 race. So that was uh, that was fantastic. But of course, the big talking point from that was the race uh, restart or the safety car restart, I should say. And, you know, who was to blame for that? Initially, um, you know, there were fingers pointed at Valtteri Bottas because he was the man at the head of the pack. He's the one who controls the pace of the car, safety car. Of course, the lights went out on that and it wasn't like, you know, with the light safety light, car lights went out too late. Um, but look, at the end, I, I don't think um, there is any blame to be laid at Bottas's feet. You know, in that situation, he, um, because of the distance from the uh, turn 15 exit and the long length of that uh, that main straight that um, I think sort of uh, played a part in it I, re- I really don't know Michael Massey has said he he was um, uh, you know they've, they've acknowledged the special circumstances of the track but he did say that the drivers were advised very clearly about all this in the briefing on Friday evening and, and when I say about all this it was to, to not overtake the safety car before the safety car line p- at the pit entry and they could not overtake until the pit lane exit that was explained to them. And of course, heat of the moment, that can sometimes go out the window, particularly when you see a car in front just all of a sudden accelerate. You think, I need to hold on to the back of that. I don't want to get caught napping. Um, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Just back to Bottas for a second. Of course, he was you know, weaving about still very slowly all the way uh, up until um, well, the pit lane gantry. And uh, of course, the problem was that he didn't want to you know, uh, pull the trigger too early because it was so easy for Lewis Hamilton to then, because of the length of that main straight, to get a, you know, to get a um, a slipstream on him. That's the reason. You know, normally, if you say, look at what happens, Barcelona, um, it's a very long straight there as well. But of course, the pit lane entry is just before the final corner. And, you know, they normally, by the time, I think it's like turn 12, is it the one at the top of the hill there before the, the final chicane? Um, and then the final right-hander, they've normally sort of backed up to there, and the safety car 
is then peeling in, and then as they come down the hill to that chicane, they start to to really hit the hit the gas, uh, hit the throttle. I should say, very American, wasn't it? Hit the gas, uh, hit the throttle, and of course they slingshot around and, and away they go. Um, but here, if Bottas had done that and watched the safety car peel off into the pit lane, there's like a kilometre long straight, and that is just your sitting duck. You know, it's it's like Russia, which we're going to uh, next uh, in, in in two weeks' time. So I can understand why Bottas didn't want to let the field go too quickly. Um, so I don't think it's any fault of his. He's, you know, the pace of the restart is completely in his hands. It is more, I mean, okay, look, and it's not like I'm trying to find blame, but you know, for mine, it really was George Russell. Because of the size of the gap now, it had been pointed out to me on Twitter that there was a sizable gap between Kvyat as well, uh, ahead of George Russell. Um, and that uh, the thing is that Kvyat closed that gap and got back to the sort of the, 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 the pace of the pack ahead of him. But Russell hadn't. He was still too far back for mine. And of course, he's accelerated to, to catch on to the back of Esteban Ocon. But everybody at that point falls, everybody behind Russell at that point falls into single file. And at that point, they're getting the ju- you know the, the only way they can judge the speed is by the car in front and they can't see anything if you look at the angle sort of you know if you're you know right behind someone you can't really see much ahead of you to the left or the right and so all those cars that have fallen into single file are concentrating pretty much on the car in front of them uh, and uh, you know George Russell is going quick Magnussen's going quick and of course Russell then pulled off to the right but Magnussen didn't so Magnuson stayed where he was, and of course that meant Latifi all of a sudden realised, whoa, okay, um, everybody's decelerating here, he's ducked to the left, but that didn't leave any time for Giovinazzi, who went uh, right up the jacksy, of course, of Kevin Magnuson and science went up, there, and away we go. So, um, you know, it, it's not to think, I don't think that uh, there should be any um, they, they, and, and quite rightly, there wasn't any penalty put on George Russell, it's just one of those things, I think, um, that happened, but um, you know, it was... Uh, it was spectacular and a testament again to the safety um, in Formula One and all the um, all the improvements that have been made to uh, the safety cell and, and, and just the general safety. You know, I mean, once again, the, the halo has proved its worth if you look at uh, some of the onboard footage, particularly of Sainz's car. And, um, you know, it's, you know, that halo needs to be there. I think it's better. I mean, okay, initially I don't think it looked as good, but I think when you've got a, a halo in the, color scheme of the car it looks fine and i think it still does look better than the aero screens i mean the aero screens do look sort of quite futuristic and i was when i was watching indy but i i think i'd, I'd still prefer the, the open more open cockpit of a formula one car but anyway that's um sort of what happened with the restart we saw um of course uh, a couple of red flags um and uh, of course uh, that one was brought out late on by Lance Stroll which turned the last 13 laps into a bit of a a bit of a sprint and again everybody got um, a, a fresh set of tires not that anybody had any sort of new tires or certainly those inside the top 10 didn't um and uh the the other red flag of course was to clean up the uh, the safety car restart uh but you know when we thought it was unusual to see the the events of the Italian Grand Prix the week before then you know that was two uh, race restarts one red flag we get two red flags three race restarts and the safety car restart it, it really was a uh, unique Tuscan Grand Prix um and of course another win to Lewis Hamilton um absolutely brilliant from him it was another missed opportunity as I said earlier for mine for Russ uh, for uh, Valtteri Bottas Albon he finally gets his podium 
Well done. And of course, it looks like he may have got over the top of the problems that he has with that Red Bull car as well. Um, and a well-deserved... Uh, he's such a lovely guy, isn't he, Alexander Albon? Ricardo will be disappointed he didn't get to catch him. And uh, look, you know, still fourth was a, a decent result. Checo Perez ended up in the points. And I'll tell you why that's rather interesting, because he'd out-qualified Lance Stroll. Stroll had got all the new updates um, for that weekend, and Checo didn't get them. He was in the older spec car, so to speak. And not only did Checo out-qualify Lance Stroll, but of course he ended up in fifth. Not that it was Stroll's fault in the race. Of course, uh, he got a puncture from, um, goodness knows whatever it was, some picking up some debris somewhere. I thought at at the time it might have been Another issue with running over the curbs because we did hear some. I think it was the Mercedes say over the over the radio, keep keep away from the curbs. It may have just been um, uh, just a sort of a precaution more than anything. But uh, I did think at one point, oh, don't tell me we were going to have this uh, same issue that we had. Uh, in Silverstone. Anyway, it didn't end up being. So it was a good result for him. Lando Norris did well. Danny Kvyat got some points. We're going to talk about uh, his little battle at the moment uh, down in AlphaTauri alongside Gasly, who, of course, went from hero to zero points. Poor old Pierre. Uh, But then again, no sympathy, I don't imagine, from up and down the pit uh, lane for those who haven't had a uh, a victory this year. He he, uh, he got one in Italy, and, you know, maybe everybody might say, well, you know, he's... um, He's uh, he's got that, so uh, let's not feel too sorry for him. Um, but yeah, you know, overall exciting race, but probably for the wrong reasons. And again, initially, I thought this is going to be a bit of a ball fest because there's no major breaking moments. But it is an absolutely rapid lap. When I did first see the onboard laps on Friday in the current Formula One cars, I thought, wow. That has really taken my breath away. And the first time in probably 15, 20 years that a new circuit has come on, and I thought that is just absolutely mind-blowing. It is a ferocious lap, isn't it, around Mugello? Uh, But anyway, there we go. That was uh, the Tuscan Grand Prix. And, uh, of course, Mercedes have um, been able to improve their lead, as has Lewis Hamilton, who's now on 190 points. Uh, Valtteri Bottas on 135, the little battle that's going on a little bit further behind them between Norris, Albon and Stroll, as well as Daniel Ricciardo, who's in there. Leclerc's still in there, 44 points, um, but uh, sorry, 49 points, I should say. So, you know, there's a nice little battle in that uh, midfield as well in the driver's points, but uh, clearly Lewis Hamilton is on song for a seventh driver's world title. So uh, let's move on to some of the stories that um, have sort of been dominating since the last Pitbox podcast um, and uh, not going to sort of go into any further what happened at the Tuscan Grand Prix. I think we've dissected that enough. But of course, the big news in the lead up was that uh, Racing Point have decided to go with Sebastian Vettel and Lance Stroll for 2020. Uh, I really feel for poor old Sergio Perez. I mean, here's a guy who is doing the job he saved the team, if you like, um, in 2018 when they transitioned from Force India to Racing Point. Uh, he's got more podiums with that team than any other driver that has driven for them. And he's the one who gets dropped. I mean, okay, I get it. Lance Stroll's dad owns the team. And it's an impossible situation in a lot of ways because Vettel, when you're looking to market a new company, and not sorry, not that they're a new company, but a, a new team into Formula One and a, a team such as Aston Martin, marketing-wise, I completely get that Vettel is more marketable than the current two drivers that they've got. 
um, four-time world champion. Yeah, and I mean, he's he's got such a great sense of humour. I really, thinking about it, I cannot wait to see what uh, ads they come up with, all the little um, marketing and uh, bits and pieces that they do with uh, Sebastian Vettel, because I think he'll be a great laugh. And, you know, at Ferrari, you don't get much of that. But um, I think that'll be fantastic to watch. But um, it was, I, I still feel, though, for Sergio Perez, uh, because he's done really well for that team and he has been loyal to them. And of course, the question, where does he go? You know, they really, it, it has been like a game of musical chairs and he has got no chair left. The music has stopped and there's nothing for him to sit in. Uh, almost. Okay, yes, Haas and Alfa Romeo, there's probably an option there for him. Um, or does he just go outside the sport? I mean, the problem that he's looking at is that he goes to either of those teams. Remember, next year's cars are going to be pretty much the same as this year's cars. And that means that they're still going to have the same Ferrari engine. Um, And, you know, it's not like Haas and Alfa are are, uh, at the same sort of level they were last year. Or certainly Haas isn't. I can see that the fit with Haas would be better um, for Checo with the sort of uh, American-Mexican connection. I, I can see why that would be uh, attractive to Haas, and of course all the, the the sponsorship money that he brings as well. So, for mine, I think if if there's an option for him, I'd say that Haas is probably looking more attractive, even though even though they're not looking as good uh, result wise. But when the new Concord Agreement kicks in, then you know everybody's got the same amount of money to play with. It's a level playing field, and maybe he's better to say, okay, I'm just going to bide my time for another year. And, and of course, that's the other thing is that he's been waiting for so long for a good car, something that could, you know, deliver points, not just on the odd occasion that suits the package that uh, Racing Point tend to put in, which is a, a, a sorry, that tend to design, which is a, a you know, a, a car that likes high speed, low, uh, low downforce circuits. And he gets that. Okay, it's, you know, whether you want to call it the pink Mercedes or not, you know, it's a good car and it's uh, at the pointy end or heading up that way. And he now gets told, no, mate, um, despite everything you've done for the team, you're not you're not going to be with us next year. Uh, and I just think that um, Racing Point probably could have handled it better, but, I, I yeah, I, I feel for poor old Sergio. Um, you know, started back in 2011. You know, it was progressing well. I mean, picked up by... McLaren in 2013 and had a year there, didn't go particularly well. Um, but yeah, you know, it's just, yeah. I, I just think Haas is probably a better situation for him than Alfa Romeo. And of course, there's still the questions as to what would happen with Alfa. Um, and I mean, the, you know, the candidates there for, I mean, don't forget there are Ferrari backed, etc. with Alfa, Mick Schumacher, Callum Eilat. Um, I, I think Robert Schwartzman, obviously. Is uh is probably the the lead there. I mean Mick Schumacher, and of course it was great to see. Sorry, just mentioning Tuscany once again. Mick Schumacher and his father's F two thousand and four car that I think uh, uh, Sebastian Vettel said he he wanted to buy, but um, didn't have enough money. Man, they must be expensive things if he can't afford them. Um, but uh, yeah, it, I, I can see Mick Schumacher. I'd say it's between one of those two. But if you're going to put someone like that into an Alpha, you've got to have. Um, you know, someone experienced on the other side of the garage. I don't think Raikkonen will be there. I, which is going to be a shame. Just my my opinion. Uh, I'd like to see him stay. I love Raikkonen. I think he's great, Kimmy. Just having him in the sport, there's everything is right with the world when Kimmy Raikkonen is driving Formula One. But um, I think they need someone a bit more experienced. And of course, Perez would fit that bill to be in the Alpha. But I, I get the feeling he'd know that they're 
probably well is there more of a chance when you go to Haas I'm not sure but anyway we'll that all it remains to be seen but they certainly need someone more experienced and I don't think Giovinazzi is it um, to lead that alpha team but maybe maybe they go that way two Ferrari drivers anyway there's a few options I mean Hulkenberg could easily come back if he wanted to um, or sorry not if he wanted to I'm sure he'd, he'd like to but does he want to go back into Alpha? Does he want to go back into a Haas? I'm not sure if he, he'd really want to. So um, anyway, that um, uh, you know that was the big story that broke just prior to the weekend. Um, and of course, the other thing I wanted to talk about was Pierre Gasly, how well he's doing. And of course, this is on the back of Alexander Albon having a, a fantastic, his first ever podium, a great race at the Tuscan Grand Prix. I mean, not just the race, he finally did a really good job against Max Verstappen in qualifying as well. It was an all Red Bull second row, and I'm sure they were hoping that there was going to be good points on offer, and better points, I should say, on offer than what they got. But um, I, I, it, it does mean if he, if he has turned a corner, and we're only going to find out in the next couple of races, that it does leave a little bit of a problem there for um, uh, Pierre Gasly, doesn't it? Where does he go? Because if those two seats do get sewn up at Red Bull, well, there's not many places for him to uh, head to, is there? Does he head then? Does he have to look elsewhere? I mean, I could sort of see him obviously being a French driver going to um, Re- uh, Renault, which will obviously be Alpine next year. And of course, that would mean that um, you know either Fernando Alonso departs or Esteban Ocon. Ocon hasn't been doing uh, the job really against uh, uh, Daniel Ricciardo, but I think we've probably got to give him a bit more time. I mean, okay, yeah, he's been in F1 before, but a year out can make a difference. But he's certainly being outperformed by Daniel Ricciardo. There's a, a class difference there. But uh, yeah, Pierre Gasly, I think he probably does need to look at uh, some other options if Red Bull are going to say, look, you're just going to have to sit there in the, the Alpha Tori for the time being. Well, I can see him thinking, no, I don't particularly don't particularly want to do that. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I'm going to ply my trade elsewhere. I think that would be uh, completely understandable. Um, but uh, you know, let's uh, take a look at the stats. And you know, even looking at last year from when, and it was nearly a year ago that Gasly was dropped back down from Red Bull to what was then Toro Rosso. Uh, he still outperformed Kvyat at that point, eight uh, times to one in quali and race conditions five to three. This year, 18 points for Gasly, 10 points for Kvyat. Of course, eight of those points came uh, at the Tuscan Grand Prix for Danny Kvyat. Uh, when it comes head-to-head qualifying and race seven to two in the favour of Gasly and Four to two in the favour of Gasly once again uh, when we talk about uh, race results. But uh, the, the, the issue for Red Bull, and I suppose it's it's a good um, a good thing for Kvyat, is I don't think there's anybody in their junior ranks who's knocking that hard on the door. I think they've got some talent coming through. Yuri Vips is going to have his time, no doubt. Um, but Sergio Sete Kamara is back there. He's driving in Formula, a uh, Super Formula as well. But I just don't think they're doing enough at the moment to say, "Yep, we can," you know, outdo someone like Danny Kvyat, even though Kvyat's not um, getting the job done still against uh, Pierre Gasly. But of course, the question still remains: How long does Pierre Gasly wait at AlphaTauri, particularly if Alex Albon? And let's say this is his turnaround race, the Tuscan Grand Prix, where he qualified well, he raced well, and it wasn't sort of anything to do with luck. He was up there because he'd qualified well. If he'd qualified in 16th, then I can understand that you say, okay, well, it was a bit of a bit of a lucky one for him to come through. But he didn't. He qualified very well, all Red Bull third, uh, second row on the grid, and he went from P4, kept his nose clean, defended away and got away from eventually Daniel Ricciardo, who put a lot of pressure on him, but he came through with his first podium. So I and if that has been the turnaround 
for Alexander Albon. Um, and, and remember, you know, next year is not looking like, I mean, unless McLaren really um, make a big step forward and, and start to challenge Red Bull for second in the Constructors' Championship, there's no big need to move anybody, is there? Because Red Bull will have um, P2, essentially, uh, for themselves, uh, assuming that, uh, once again, Mercedes will be way ahead and, and, and if anything they can be sort of trying to take on Mercedes. But then again, if they are a little bit closer to Mercedes, you've got to make sure that both of your drivers are scoring points. But if Albon has turned it around, look, by the looks of it, he may have. We'll only see uh, when we get to Russia and beyond. Then Red Bull may have a, a pretty firm driver um, pairing for a couple of years. And that's not good news, really, for Pierre Gasly. It uh, means he's going to have to be looking for something else. He's a French driver, you never know. He could end up at Alpine, um, depending on how Ocon goes. And of course, Ocon's a Mercedes driver. He's contract is up at the end of this year isn't it two year contract so you know there might be some movement Ocon might I don't know where he'd go but anyway we can look at that a little bit further down the track I suppose but uh, Gasly's driving well enough I think to to uh to be at a, a a team that's going to give him more opportunities but then again he got a great opportunity and he took it at the Italian Grand Prix with his first podium and first ever race victory And, of course, it was the 1,000th race for the Scuderia at the Tuscan Grand Prix. And so what better reason to invite a rabid Ferrari fan to have a chat on than that. Uh, his name is James, and he is a big fan of Marinello. So I thought I'd have a chat about what's been going on and get a fan's take on the season. Uh, James, firstly, a tough season so far for the Tifosi, isn't it? I'd use the word brutal, John. Um, you know, it's it's hard to see the fall from grace over sort of 2017, 2018, 2019 to be in the situation that the team are in at the moment is frankly astonishing, really how they came so close and have now seemingly thrown away, you know, four or five years worth of hard work to build up to those title challenges. Um, it's, uh, it's baffling to say the least. And, I mean, even you know, last weekend, thousands Grand Prix. The weekend before that was the Italian Grand Prix, and of course, home Grand Prix. And those are normally two races where everybody expects. I mean, and well, certainly the, the the previous race, the Italian Grand Prix, you expect that Ferrari are going to turn it on, and you know, and it just wasn't. And and of course, it's it's a it's because of what's happened between seasons with whatever's gone on with the engine, but that doesn't make it any easier for the fans. No, not at all. Um, you know, it's a bitter pill to swallow, I think, more than anything else, because the, the hope that they built last season in particular, um, obviously, and then the chatter around the engine rigs and whatever went on behind the scenes there, I think, mm. you know, uh, unless, you're, uh, unless you're blind, you know, you can see that there was stuff maybe going on there, even as the, mo even as the most, um, you know, uh, vehement Ferrari fan you know that there were things going on there potentially that weren't necessarily within the spirit whatever it may be however they want to spin it um and like you say you know coming into Monza it's well I you know I never dread Monza because even during times of of, of unrest or challenging situations for the team they somehow pull something out of the bag when it comes to Monza in particular because they know the weight of the nation is on their shoulders they know that they've got to deliver um, you know, they've got to put in a performance at least worthy of some applause. And coming into Monza this season was, well, it, it, it was it was devastating more than anything else from the point of view that you just knew, given the circumstances, having built the car they built, designed with probably having another 50 to 100 horsepower, I suppose, or something silly, 
to get it, you know, through the draggy uh, nature of the car and that not being there, Mm. Um, the, 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 the writing was on the wall. Um, they were going to get, they were going to get a tonking and they, and they did, you know, and, it was tough. And, and, you know, that it's, um, you know, because of COVID, there was no fans. And of course, in some ways that was a blessing in disguise. And um, I've been to Monza and been there when the fans are swarming and surging around underneath the podium. And I think, except that maybe Mexico's stolen its mantle, it was always the best podium of the season because of the Tifosi. Um, mm. So, you know, in some ways a blessing in disguise. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, it would have been tough for them to handle that this season, I think. Um, you know, not not just from an expectation point of view, but you are under scrutiny. I don't think the Italians are particularly shy in uh, in coming forward when it comes to their thoughts and their opinions and their views when they feel so passionate about something. And, um, you know, that podium, again, you know, what a shame if you go back 12, 12 months or so, obviously, to Charles stepping up there and um, it was, you know, the, 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 the thrill, the buzz, the energy that goes through that podium um, is just phenomenal at the best times, even for non-Ferrari drivers, I think. But they can yeah. feel it as well. You know, that it's not just Ferrari drivers that get the buzz there. Everyone wants to be on that podium because they look out over a sea of Tifosi. So, um, you know, yeah, for Ferrari as a team, a blessing in disguise, no doubt. Um, probably uh, quietly licking their wounds, obviously, in the background without having that scrutiny on top of them. But um, a, a, a real shame, whichever way you look at it, because the fans not being there in particular, I think they're, you know, a fair percentage of the energy that that race creates. Um, so let's move on to, pardon me, the Tuscan Grand Prix. And of course, it was the 1000th Grand Prix for Ferrari. I loved, first of all, the blood red, the deep blood red livery that they ran. I think they should run it all the time. That was brilliant. Um, uh, so, you know, your thoughts on that. And also, uh, <clears throat> I imagine that you saw the race on the weekend, but also maybe the lead up to it and young Mick Schumacher driving that 2004 Ferrari. That was special. Phenomenal. Um, you know, as a fan, incredible to see Schumacher's helmet, you know, in that car again. Um, the noise, obviously, you know, as a Ferrari fan, a lot of the feelings about noise of the cars, etc. Uh, you know, it's not no, no one uh, would deny that that was quite special seeing that again and hearing it again um and of course that was just such a golden period for ferrari as well you know with the michael seven you know titles you know just such a golden period that that car was the sort of the epitome of ferrari for that time wasn't it yeah for sure it was one of their one of their greater uh, designs there's no doubt about that and um you know brought back some very special memories and even you know watching the coverage you've got you know drivers of old uh, pundits now whether it be jensen or uh, some of the other guys obviously filming and taking pictures and just saying, wow, you know, how much do we miss this side of the sport? Going back to the, you know, the, the uh, livery for this race in particular, mm. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, long-term beef of mine is that what, what's with the fluorescent kind of orangey red situation. <laughs> I know that there's maybe some marketing stuff behind it and some very you know, other reasons that they go down that route, but the car looked phenomenal. Yeah. Um, it was almost like they bought a new car out. And, and in a bizarre way, psychologically, you know, I think people started to think of me in particular, well, maybe that just gains them a little few tenths here and there. <laughs> I don't know, just because it felt like they should. Um, you know, I totally agree. They should run that livery all the time. I, I can't see why you would want to move away from that when that is really, you know, going back to the, the very early days and the very special days. Yeah, it uh, it's just a shame. Well, maybe they might take uh, our advice and uh, everybody else's thoughts on it on board and uh, continue to run it. Probably not, but anyway. Um, now, the, the, the sore topic that we need to uh, broach is, because I know you're a big Sebastian Vettel fan, um, and of course the news that 
obviously we found out at the beginning of the season that he was leaving the Scuderia and that he didn't even get offered a contract. Um, and of course, we'll have a chat about that as well. Uh, but of course, he's heading across to Racing Point. But, you know, Sebastian Vettel, four-time world champion, um, it's uh, been a tough season for him too. It has. Um, yeah, I have, a, I have a theory on this. Others may disagree. Um, yeah, look, Seb, I don't think Seb's entirely blameless in the, in the situation. Um but there are reasons behind that, and I can come on to that in a second. I think overall, the way that Ferrari have treated Seb uh, as a four-time world champion, as someone that's achieved what he's achieved, and, and someone that is respected you know, in and out of the car as well. Seb comes across as a great guy. He's got a great sense of humor. He's always got time for people. Uh, he's always got a smile on his face. He's well-liked, and I don't think this would have gone down too well within the paddock uh, in terms of the way that Ferrari have managed this. I mean, to not even offer the guy... A contract, even if it was a year, to say, you know what, just come back for another year. We want you here. We need the, you know, your 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 input. We need your expertise in trying to get the car to where we want it to be. And Charles, whether he would admit it or not, has probably learned quite a lot from him in that period of time that he's been alongside him as well. Um, I think Seb wanted to stay. I don't think he would have been looking to move. Um, you know, signing that contract ultimately can be, you know, my view, a, a blessing and a curse. And. He's now feeling the the wrong end of that, sadly, um, with the way that they've dealt with him. So, you know, in terms of where he's maybe dropped the ball, um, my theory is that, uh, you know, he's made mistakes based on not just the level of expectation maybe at Ferrari specifically, but from outside of that, there's been pressures on him. He's dealing with a driver in Lewis, which whether you agree or not, uh, you know, Lewis has the ability to to mentally crush his opponents. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, if you can't handle the heat in that situation, you know, it's going to be tough to overcome that. You look at what it did to Nico. Yeah. Nico fought and fought and was beaten down and beaten down. And all, all that time that was going on, Lewis was talking about how great a friendship they had and how they'd grown up karting and they had all this amazing memories together. Uh, and yet once they got in the car maybe Nico got sucked into that and maybe he didn't have the killer instinct and realised right at the last knockings when he finally did the job. Well, I mean, you know, there's that theory as well that the the reason that Nico was able to get that championship that year was that he stopped he stopped being friends or friendly towards Lewis because it was sure. the only way that for him to, it seemed to be the only way for him to mentally be able to challenge him as well as in the car was for to sure. say, I'm not your friend anymore sort of thing because it, it was very salty, wasn't it? It was. It was immensely salty. That's a great word for it. And, you know, that, that relationship tra- changed drastically uh, in that last season. You know, it was, it was a dog-eat-dog situation. Finally, Nico kind of overcame whatever that kind of mental barrier that he was facing against Lewis was, and he did the job. But, you know, uh, he ends up retiring almost immediately. And you can't look at Nico in that situation and say he was past it. You can't look at him and say that he was too old. You know, that you've got guys like Kimmy still racing. Okay, Kimmy's not up at the front, but Kimmy's still doing a job, getting paid a nice salary and, and living that life. Nico, to walk away at that point, I think that said a lot about what Lewis did to him mentally over those years. And he almost admitted it himself. You know, I don't have anything left in the tank mentally to, to go on and do this. I cannot do this again. Yeah. So, you know, for Seb, was Seb necessarily sucked in as much as Nico? No, I don't think he has been. I think he has shown moments of weakness so um you know you look at Baku mm. uh in 17 when you know, the, the safety car incident when he pulls alongside and just drives into the side of Lewis I mean mm. in what 
world does that appear to be appropriate behavior given his circumstances given his title challenge you know that was the wrong thing to do and lewis probably knew at that point he was making him make those decisions uh, and for me that was whilst it was a long time ago i think that was the beginning of that process in seb's head where things started to go wrong uh, and i think it's a slippery slope once you're into that situation once you are on the back foot i don't think you're getting getting up you yeah. know it's uh, it's tough and, and of course from that 2018 um you know he started off well didn't he sebastian but then again mentally it seemed to be that he lost it because you know he lost i'm not going to go into all of them but you know he lost the lead from the german grand prix that year and he clashed yeah. in the first uh corner with uh, with uh, valtteri bottas at the french grand prix and then he clashed with you know there was all these incidents all of a sudden where he just had been put off his game sufficiently and i think i i agree with you i think it was because mentally um the challenge that lewis had thrown down was too much and look the other thing I you know when you look at uh, Nico Rosberg just for a second and why he retired you know the only way that Nico could win another world championship was as you say to do mentally what he did in 2016 or move to another team but no other team was going to be competitive against that Mercedes so you think you know do I really want that do I want to put myself through that so yeah absolutely I I completely agree he was pretty much done now it's funny you talk about you know the the managing a situation well and, and Ferrari didn't with um, Sebastian, I know that they, beginning of last year, they uh, brought in a lady by the name of Sylvia Hoffer, who has worked with Williams and more recently McLaren. Yeah. And she was brought in to sort of um, turn around that frosty relationship that Ferrari have with all the press. I mean, the Italian press are always brutal, aren't they? But with all the press. Um, and, you know, they made her job a lot more difficult when they handle the situation like with, with, with uh, Sebastian Vettel the way they did. Sure. I think that the, the key really that that was a big hire. You know, she she's well liked in the paddock. She's always got a smile on her face. She's considered a, a super safe pair of hands. She's charming, um, you know, very professional and ultimately pretty cool under pressure. And I think her predecessor was Alberto Antonini, I think, wasn't it? Mm. Um, who was well documented to be pretty uncooperative at the best of times um not particularly friendly and and that you know if you if you are the face or the 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 spokesperson for any team uh to kind of promote that vibe as opposed to the look we're gonna we're gonna find time for you we want to spend time with you we want to give you access we want you to be able to to speak to drivers etc and get what's really going on within the team and just smooth things over um he didn't really have that ability by the sounds of it and she certainly does so it would have been you know, maybe a, a pretty tough gig for her had things have been going relatively normally this year. I think given the circumstances, there's been lots of talk you know, about other things like COVID, et cetera. And I think that's probably slightly taken the heat off of the, mm. the, the team in general because there's been other things to focus on and excuses to be made. But, um, you know, the, the Seb situation, she, you know, talk about, pulling the pin and throwing her the grenade, it would have been tough to deal with that. <laughs> Absolutely. But as you say, I mean, she's a, a lovely person as well and such um, such a laugh. I had many great years working alongside Sylvia at Williams and um, and McLaren. But um, let's move on to Carlos Sainz. Obviously, <clears throat> next year, uh, he is uh, taking over from Sebastian <clears throat> in uh, in the Ferrari. And, and he's, he's come alive since joining McLaren at the beginning of 2019. I mean, he was almost like a driver without a, without a chair, without a seat when Ricardo all of a sudden went to Renault and you know, McLaren sort of picked him up. It was almost like it, you know, it was just sort of a, a, half-baked, a half-baked thought from McLaren. But he has really flourished and it's going to be a good battle between him and Leclerc. I think it is. Um, I think, you know, 
Charles Charles won't like that for sure. Um, you know, it's going to be tough for him to to handle Carlos. Carlos is a super confident, dare I say, bordering on arrogant, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, he, he's one of those guys. He's hungry. He comes from a, a pretty historic motor motorsport dynasty. Uh, you know, with the achievements that his dad has had in rallying, etc., and, and, and many other forms of motorsport. Um, he's got the fire in his belly, and who could say no to uh, a drive at the Scuderia? I mean, uh, we, we've just been you know talking about how challenging it can be, but the reality is, if someone comes knocking and says they're interested, you know, you're going to take that drive. And uh, I think Charles is going to have a tough time with Carlos. Carlos isn't going to go in. He's not going to go there with the view to to kind of sitting in the background and learning his trade. He's done that. He's been through you know, tougher times. He's shown that he can race, he can make moves, he can do what he needs to do to be to be there or thereabouts. Uh, and given the right tools, I think he can win. And I think he can win comfortably. And, you know, his drive at Monza, obviously, albeit with a severely affected race, given the circumstances, was was still very impressive. Um, and I think with a couple more laps, he would have probably taken Gasly out. So, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough for Charles to handle that, I think. Um, it, Ferrari, again, they've got another a driver issue on their hands, I think, moving forward. I mean, the thing is that, you know, what, um, I think Carlos will bring um, is, I mean, and he, he's definitely not a number two, um, uh, but what Ferrari need to be able to do to take the, the fight to the likes of Mercedes is to have two good point scoring drivers. And I think, I, I love Kimi. I think he's brilliant. I, I sadly don't think he's going to be with us next year in F1, but when he was alongside Sebastian, Sebastian outshone him and I don't think, Kimi got the best out of the car that year because they, mm. you know, they they um they needed two drivers, two Ferrari drivers in that fight, in that battle with the Mercs, and of course all Merck had to do when they only had one was to undercut, use Bottas to undercut um, the leading Ferrari, which often than not in 2018 was Sebastian, and then Lewis could drive off into the sunset. So they need to have two strong drivers, and I think you're right, they're going to have two strong drivers with Sainz and Leclerc. Yeah, yeah, for sure, there'll be there'll be plenty of points providing the car's decent. Um, you know, the uh, next year's the reality is that, that the car isn't going to miraculously turn around anytime soon. And I think Charles and Carlos will both be more than aware that that's the case. They're going to have to suck it up a little bit next year, um, you know, try and put some points on the board where they can take opportunity where they can. Um, the long and short is that they're going to be hoping or certainly Carlos will be. Uh, moving to the team now that uh, McLaren are going to be getting Mercedes engines and they're coming to a run of form. Carlos has got to be hoping that they build a, an absolute monster for 22 at Ferrari because um, if they don't, he's going to be ruining his decision maybe. But um, yeah, next year it's going to be tough. Get some points on the board. As you say, they're probably fairly evenly matched in terms of their abilities to to win races moving forward. Obviously, Carlos hasn't got there just yet and, and Charles has had that opportunity. But Plenty of points on the board and then go for it in 22 and, and see what happens. And I suppose at least, you know, 2022, it is a reset. Um, everybody's got as good a chance as anybody else because, you know, the rules will be stating that everybody's got the same budget. So, um, you know, that's um, that's something to look forward to, I think, also for the sport as well. Look, James, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. I must admit, I could continue having this conversation about various topics with you, and I think we'll probably revisit again in the future. But, mate, thank you very much for your time and uh, very much for your thoughts and opinions too. No worries, John. It's been a pleasure, and I'd love to come on again. Yeah, great chat. James Underhay there. Um, If you've got something you'd like to get off your chest, you'd like to have a bit of a chat about F1 on the podcast, get in touch on email. It is pitboxpodcast.com at gmail.com or on Twitter. Uh, it's the Twitter handle at Podcast. This weekend, of course, no racing. A well-earned rest for those who have been for the last three weeks out on the road. Time to 
catch up with family and friends and uh, just mentally recuperate as much as physically as well. They are doing an incredible job to keep the whole show going. So uh, well-deserved rest for all those involved with Formula One. Look forward to your company again next week. And of course, the week after, it is the Russian Grand Prix. We'll preview that on the next Pitbox podcast.